0: talking about politics the last few weeks, and I want to, in a sense, continue talking about politics, but not explicitly today. But uh, one of the things that that gets our attention (laughs) is when our world starts shaking, and when uh, the world around us shakes, it tends to shake our lives also, right? And uh, the, the kind of division, violence, upheaval that's going on you know, all around us in our country right now tends to reverberate into our lives. And when that happens, we become really unsettled. We don't know uh, which way to turn. Uh, we get confused, disoriented. And, and people ask me all the time, John, you know, when, when things are like, seem like they're spiraling out of control like this, what, what can we do? And I want to suggest something to you. We're going we're gonna to start each week for a few weeks and talk about the idea of, uh, we're calling the series Shaken. What do you do when your life is shaken, when your world is shaken, when the world is shaken? And I, what I want to propose to you first, it's, it's a simple thing that God's people have done for a long time, and it's a very powerful way to respond to things when they're shaken, is we just need to sing. We need to sing. We need to sing together. Now, if you have a Bible with you in a second, we're going to open up to a particular part of the Bible. But the, in the middle of the Bible is this book called the Book of Psalms. And in the Book of Psalms, it's the biggest book in the Bible. It is the, the book of prayers and songs that God's people have sung for thousands of years, particularly when they are shaken. There's Psalms all through the Book of Psalms that particularly irrelevant for our experience when we're being shaken by the world. And what I want to do is look today at Psalm 2. It's a short psalm, but it's the in the New Testament, it's one of the most repeated psalms, and it's called by scholars a messianic psalm, meaning this psalm was about the kings of Israel, but it's also a psalm that that points ahead to the coming King, Jesus. And then it talks about His first coming and His second coming. And it's an amazing psalm. It's real short. I want to read it. And what I want you to see, the reason why we need to sing is when we sing and we worship together, it does three things. Worship reminds us of why things are shaking. It reminds us of how God turns the mess around. And when we sing together, it invites us into the solution God has. So, when we sing together, which is what this book is all about, it's about praying and singing together as a people, as a gathered people. It gives us insight, keen insight, amazing insight into why things are a mess, why things are shaking. And then it shows us God's solution for the mess, and then it invites us into it. That's the thing about singing and worship. It's not properly exercised. It is something that it draws you into something. In fact, it surprises you how it draws you into something. So we'll see that at the end. So let's read Psalm 2, and then we'll pray and, and ask God's blessing on the word. Psalm 2, verse 1, and if you don't have a Bible, there are paperback Bibles like this under the chair seats in front of you, and it's page 377. So why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. In other words, He mocks them. Then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You're my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling or with reverence. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. And blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now, this psalm ha- has four voices in it, okay? There's a voice in the beginning that says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? And, it, and it's the voice of the people who are rebelling against God. They're saying, You know, we don't want to have anything to do with God etc. And then the second voice you hear is God Himself speaking to those people and to us. Then the third voice is you hear the Son of God, the King that God puts on His throne. Then the fourth voice you hear is the psalmist saying, therefore, now in other words, what we've sung leads us to a conclusion. It leads us to some kind of response, all right? So, the worship reminds us of why things are shaking and the question that this psalm starts with is the same question we have when we're shaking is why are things like this what's going on everything seems to be in turmoil uh, economic turmoil uh, social turmoil religious turmoil Theological turmoil, uh, interpersonal turmoil, uh, turmoil between uh, every possible party. It just seems like that's the way it is right now. And when they would sing these psalms, and God would anchor them and speak to them in the midst of this and and clarify things that that they would lose sight of because when, when things get shaken, you get disoriented. And I uh, remember years ago, someone telling me they were in they, they were an earthquake in uh, northern California in the east San Francisco Bay Area. And they described uh, standing in the street. They were walking towards someone's house, and there was this rumbling. It was just like it sounded like it was coming from everywhere. It was just this rumbling. And it was very alarming. And as it rumbled, the ground started moving. And then the ground... The street, the ground started rolling like waves were rolling. The street was rolling like it was the ocean. The houses were moving. And the sound was coming from everywhere. Like it was coming from the ground, but it was just omnipresent. And it was so deep, it was like it shook your bones. And this, my friend just said they were just standing there shaking. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, like uh, the house that they were walking towards, like next house over the the front door flinks open, and this woman in her like in her you know nightgown with with partially uh, rolled hair runs out the door ah! Ah! And hits the sidewalk and runs down the street ah! my friend 's standing there like, going like this, and this lady 's running as her, you know the sidewalk is rolling, and she just kind of runs and, and like wow. That was disoriented. That's a picture of disorientation. That's a picture of how things can shake enough that you kind of lose your senses. I mean, that woman would never have walked outside looking like that. Except she was just overwhelmed by this moment. And you can be shaken like that. And when we sing, like the Jewish people learned, when they sang and worshipped together... All of a sudden, they, they, they began to have this clarity and this peace and this poise and this sense of, of things that they didn't have by themselves. And so, what the people are doing here is the problem, what's shaking everything is human rebellion. And so, the, the psalmist says, the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth take their stand And the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. They say, let us break their chains, God, the the, the Lord's chains and the chains of the anointed one, and throw off their fetters. And so what what human rebellion does is it makes us see God's good will as bondage, as slavery. It makes us look at something that's good and we see it as something that's really bad and evil. It, it, It turns things upside down. And that has an effect. This is the thing about rebellion. It, it has this effect. It's contagious. It spreads. Attitudes and mindsets spread from person to person to person. And human rebellion, he describes here, is, is not just individualistic because it's systemic. He talks about the rulers and the people with authority and power. They are in the grip of this same attitude that we don't want God's will. We don't want what He wants for our lives. We don't want what He wants for your lives. And we're going to get our way. We're going to go wherever we want. And in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it sketches out this common kind of posture that human beings have is, we say to God, not your will, my will. That, it, that at the bottom, below, everything else that's wrong, is this, the root of it is this fundamental attitude. If you want to decide, define sin in sort of a, a simple phrase, it's to say to God, not your will, my will. And in, in saying that, it's a way, we, we aren't always aware of it, but at some point it will come out. There's a sense of mocking God that's a part of it. Where we say, God, you're messed up if you think I'm going to do that, whatever that is. Whatever you want that's not what I want, that is stupid. That's ridiculous. That's foolish. And you're foolish. Now, that isn't always so overt, but there's times where it becomes overt. Where it becomes just, it's right out front. Because that's, there's a progression in our, in our disobedience to God and our will is we're never content to just stay where we are. We will move forward in that degenerative condition unless something checks us, unless we're rescued, unless something frees us. And so human rebellion distorts our thinking to where we begin to think that our will, what we want, is really good. And the rulers, people who have power and can insulate themselves from maybe some of the consequences of, of foolish behavior, they think, too, we want our will. You know, power corrupts, absolute power, as they say, corrupts absolutely. So this is what our own willfulness starts doing, is it starts begetting and, and birthing inside us more and more determination to go our own way. And, and it makes us think that we're free. When we do what we want, we're free. Because we, they said here, let us break their chains, the chains of the Lord and, and His Anointed One, of, of God and Christ. They looked at that and they said what Jesus said when He said, if you love Me, keep My commandments. And My commandments are not burdensome. They say, no, they are burdensome. In fact, they're cruel. They're tyrannical, they're unreasonable, they're destructive. I know what's best for me. And all of us, that's why in in the beginning of this song, when they sing that, they sing it acknowledging as they sing it first that that's true about the world. Then it begins to sink in that that's also true about them. And when we sing this, we begin to see ourselves in what we sing. We see others, but we also begin to sing ourselves. If we worship together, we will eventually see what's true. That's one of the things about when you worship together. It it clarifies things. And it says that they conspired together and they plotted together. And there's something about human rebellion. when, When we think, not your will, my will, we feel like we're so clever. We just have this sense of, I'm, you know, I've got it figured out. I can make it work. doesn't matter if nobody else has made this scheme work. I can make it work. I'm smarter than other people. I can do this thing that I want to do and it's not going to end up in the ditch like everybody else has done it. We have this sense of... of we think it's cleverness. But the Bible calls it folly. It says it's folly to think that way. And again, I want you to see there's this, there's this interesting sort of a, 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 a turn on the idea of mocking. The, the, the psalm starts out where people are mocking God. And then the next thing it says is when God starts showing them His solution, when He starts showing them, He mocks them. It says the Lord laughs. Now, it's not mockery in the way that they were mocking, but what He's saying is, you think that your way is better than my ways? He laughs at that. And he's not threatened because it says the Lord sits on his throne and he laughs. This is the only place in the Bible where it says that God laughs. Do you know that? And what he's doing is he's laughing at our folly that we know what's best. Because we... Th- we think if we could throw God's you know, goodwill off and do what we want, we'll be free, we'll be happy in a way that we couldn't be doing what God wants, and that that threatens God somehow. Because the truth is, when, we're, when we relate to human authority and we push back at human authority, like, you've seen this at work, right? Uh, good policy, bad policy, it doesn't matter. If someone pushes back against a policy at work, the people who are supposed to implement that policy and manage it, they get tweaked by that. And they react to it. And almost always they feel insecure. Oh my gosh, what are you doing? You're know, you're, you're, you're going to blow this thing up. But they feel personally insecure. A lot of times when our kids push back at us and they misbehave, at our core identity, we feel insecure about that. It reflects on us. But God sits on His throne and says, this is so silly that you're doing this. It's, it's comedic. And He scorns and mocks that. Now, our, God takes our mockery. God's the only one that can do this. God can take the mess that we make and He can turn it around. And he turns it around in a way that we could ever have imagined that's the way he would do it. That's, I mean, that's one thing about a great story. I don't know if, if many of you like to read, but good stories surprise you. And what this psalm does, what God does, number one, God doesn't react the way people think he's going to react, he's not insecure. He just, He's, he's in charge. or like, like one of my friends says, "God is large and He's in charge." He just sits there and looks at our, us in our folly and goes, "You guys don't get it, do you? You can't mock me." I want to read a passage in the Old Testament, I mean, the New Testament to you that, that addresses this. Because what God does is he takes our mockery. And at first, what he does when he laughs is he exposes the folly of our mockery. And then he turns the mockery around. And you may wonder, how could God turn mockery around and save us with mockery? God saves us through mockery. But he exposes our folly first. So in Galatians 6, Paul, Paul's writing. And he says to the the Galatian Christians, he says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. So he makes this very bottom line statement that you look at and think, well, I can mock God. People mock God all the time. You know, they call him names and, and scorn him. But what he says next is, he says, a man, the reason why God can't be mocked is we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Because God, there's, a, there's a moral structure to the universe. And when you sow to your own will and not God's will, your own will doesn't become something good. It doesn't give birth to something that gives life. It gives birth to something that takes life. It's like, it's like a, a, a life evaporator. You know how when you get moisture in your basement, you put an evaporator down there, you turn it on, put the little hose in your basement drain, and it just pumps water out of the air. And I remember we had, we had a, a, our basement got wet, carpet got wet, you know, I lifted the carpet up, Turned that evaporator on, came back a day or two later. That carpet was as dry as you could ever imagine. And our own will, when we live just for our own will, it gives birth to things that, that evaporate, that take life away. So Paul says, a man reaps what he sows. The one who sows... Now, when he says the one... He isn't qualifying that. You understand? He isn't saying, well, if you're a Christian, this doesn't work. Or if whatever you think you are, Paul makes this statement in, in this exhaustive way. He says, the one, anyone, who sows to please his own sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And what he says is, When we say to God, and we don't realize sometimes that we're mocking God when we say this, but when we say, not your will, but my will, we mock God. But God says, don't you realize what you're doing is only going to destroy you? It's only going to bring pain in your life. Like I had breakfast with somebody this week, and they were telling me about a struggle they have with uh, bitterness. They were really hurt in, in a circumstance in their life and they just couldn't get over it. And what they had done was they had just pulled back away from this party that had hurt them. And they then talked, they asked me, they said, I thought that was going to be helpful, but now, two years later, I see what a mess that that's making because not only am I just withdrawing from this person who hurt me, I find myself withdrawing from all these other people too. Because your life can't be compartmentalized. Your life is like an open room. It's not compartmentalized. And when you're bitter towards one person and you live that out, it's going to bleed over into all the other people in your life. And it will re- affect your relationship with God. It's, and you know the old saying is, that when someone hurts you and, and you get them back by being resentful towards them, It's like drinking poison and thinking it's going to kill them. It doesn't. And Paul says, if we sow to our own will, irrespective of God's goodwill, it just wrecks our own lives. And he said, you cannot avoid that. It is built into the design of things. God doesn't have to visit it on you. He doesn't have to extend his hand and make something happen. It will just happen because there is a moral structure to the universe. God's good universe. So, the sad thing is, when Paul, or I mean, when the psalmist describes here, this is a sign of God's wrath. Now, when we think of wrath, we think of someone blowing their top, but the Bible says God's wrath is not like that. In fact, in in Romans one, it says the way that God's wrath is demonstrated is. He lets us go our own way. He gives us over to the things we choose to serve instead of Him. And when we do that, it begins to destroy our lives. And that is, according to Paul in Romans 1, that is a picture of God's wrath. So, So when... Like, I was listening uh, to NPR this week, podcast, and they just, you know, s- they cycle through. And uh, they were talking about the heroin trade. And they interviewed a young guy, a street a dealer in San Francisco area. And I, I don't know how old he was. He sounded like he was around 30, early 30s. But he described how he got into the, got into the drug trade when he was 18. His, uh, he'd been living on the streets from when he was 16 years old, bad family situation, went on the streets, and he, the kid clearly had a mind for business, and he said, I realized that I could survive on the streets if I sold drugs. And so back then, it was in the middle of the Oxycontin uh, boom, and so he was selling Oxycontin, and he was making a lot of money. He, he, was, he said, by the time I was 18, I had three cars... I had a boat, I had a motorcycle. I had everything I wanted, and he said. Then I started using my product, and then OxyContin dried up because they realized all the problems with OxyContin, and along came heroin, and he said, heroin was even better for business than OxyContin because it was cheaper, and and it hit something in people's brains. This is what he said, and this, this young guy's name was, his street name was Bone, okay, like Bone, you know, like Funny Bone, uh, except it wasn't funny, and he was telling his story, and he said, at the end of it, at the end of the interview, it was a little 14-minute podcast, he said, listen, they, they said, anything else you want us to know, Bone, and uh, Bone said, he said, I started this because I, my life was a mess, and getting high helped me get through my life. And it paid my bills and it gave me so many things that I couldn't get any other way because nobody wanted me, in a sense. But he said, the worst mistake I made was starting to use my product. And he says, I'm at the, they, when they opened the interview, they said, I just, they said, what's going on, Bone? He said, I just died. That the day before, he'd OD'd and one of his friends who was using drugs with them drug him to the ER, to the entrance of the ER, and dropped him, and then left. And they revived him. So what Bone is now doing is Bone has bought one of those kits that you can use to inject yourself if you OD. Do you see how what looks like freedom has killed him? And he's in the grip of it, and he's so much in the grip of it that he knows it's going to kill him, and so he's trying to prepare himself. Seems clever, doesn't it? To say, yeah, just in case I get a dose that's too pure, I've got this in my pocket, and I tell my friends, if I OD, you pull this out of my pocket and give me a shot. Seems clever, doesn't it? You see the folly in that? But we get into things, and we think there's freedom in doing this. I get everything I want, but it destroys us. And so... The mockery of that, and and we might not look at heroin addiction as mockery of God, but it is. It is mockery of God in the same way that greed is. Where we just seek to acquire as many things as we can. Or power. If we're into the acquisition of power and moving up the corporate ladder and being an influential person. That is a mockery of God in a whole other way. Because it's making something good that God gave us. Power is not a bad thing. Money's not a bad thing. Pleasure's not a bad thing. All the but all the, 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 the good things that we turn into ultimate things are a form of mockery of God. And so what what the psalmist says is God turns the mockery around. And they sing this. And it's inferred in this that, that God says, okay you think I can't rule and I'm not in charge. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to anoint him and send my son and I'm going to establish him as the king. But what he does is he begins to turn the mockery around in this way. He takes their mockery and he turns it around. Because Jesus doesn't come as a conquering king on a, a, as a military person on a horse with an army behind him. He comes as a servant. He comes as the other Old Testament prophet saw, the suffering servant. So the son, the king, who was going to rule over the world, that God says, he makes a mockery of people who want their own way even though it destroys them. And he sends his son into the world in vulnerability and weakness. And like it says here, uh, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. People look at Jesus and say, he looked fragile. He looked weak. He wasn't a winner. He was a loser. You know, being a winner is politically a big deal now. It's a, it's a term that uh, Donald Trump uses. And, I, I, you know, people of a certain mindset look at Jesus and go, he is a loser but what God does in Jesus is He shows that to live for my will and not your will makes you weak. It makes you fragile and broken in a way that you can't see. And it, but what it does for those that have ears to hear and eyes to see is it exposes what you've done with your life and the mistake you made because what, the, what Jesus then did, cut to this chase here, what Jesus then did was He took the mockery upon Himself of all of our sin, all of our foolishness, right? This is what the Gospel says. That He was willing to identify with us and be what what we in our worst moments say about God is we look at Jesus and say, you're a fool for saying, not my will, but your will, God. Because look what it got you. It got you killed. But God turned that mockery around And He raised Jesus from the dead and He made Him now the answer, the solution to the mess that we've all created. So when we sing this song, when they used to sing this song, it reminded them that, and you can see, it's ironic in the middle of this, you can see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in this passage. You see God the Father, you see His Son, and you see the Son who's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And you see God at work in this Person, the son who seems fragile and weak, who's someone you can reject, who's someone you can push away and say, Not your will, but my will still. But Jesus went to the cross and exposed the folly that we all choose and took it on himself and says, I'm going to break the power of that folly if you will turn to me. And so The last thing is that worship always invites us into God's solution. Because the last part of this, it says in verse 10, Therefore you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. And then there's this tender invitation. And this promise. It says, Blessed, blessed, is everyone, all who take refuge in Him. So to kiss the Son is to take refuge in the Son. It is to say, humbly, I mocked God. I mocked life and thought I could go my own way and it made a mockery of me and I'm stuck with the mess I've made. But God offered Jesus, His Son, to take all the mess that I created and substitute himself for me and if I take refuge in Him, if I call on Him, if I commit my life to Him, that I'll be rescued from that. That all the power of my own self-inflicted mockery. I was mocking God, but in fact, I only mocked myself. Jesus willingly, in love, said, I don't want you to have to endure that. Nobody else could rescue me. Nobody else could rescue us. He did. And he says, just call out to me. Come to me. Kiss me. There's an intimacy to that. And it's a picture. You know, we've, we've seen this picture in, in movies, in popular movies, and the, the one that comes to mind for me is the Godfather. And If you remember, when, when someone wanted something from the Godfather, he would put his hand out. And they had to kiss his hand. Because he was the one with the answers and the solution. And it was a twisted perversion of the beauty of real worship. Because when you looked at this person, the Godfather, you just see this violent betrayer, liar, corrupter, oath-breaker, the worst of humanity. But he looked just suave. But it was evil. He was an embodiment of evil. And that's what it looks like when we kiss anything else but Him, but Jesus. And there's this, because Jesus is the one who, when we come to Him, He does have the solution and answers for the mess that we've made. And so, they sang this song because it was a reminder when everyone around us is saying not your will, God, but my will, that is a very powerful thing to live with. And it, it, it starts working on you. It starts just eroding a little bit of the confidence in you that no, that's, that's folly. It starts looking more attractive. And when, when we sing together, when things are shaken It begins to shape us. It begins to remind us. We have to do this together. See, one of the things, one of the the essence of folly is to try to go through life alone. This is the essence of what selfishness is. It's not my will. I mean, not your will, but my will. And we say that to everybody. And our lives become full of conflict because we're all battling over who gets the last cookie on the plate. And we create all this strife amongst us, but at the root of it is it's not my will. Not your will, God, but my will. It's not your will. It's my will to each person around us, right? And we—and it seems so attractive because I want that cookie, right? I want the last cookie on the plate. And when you're a kid, you fight over it, right, In your family, your siblings. I was the only child, so I didn't have to fight over it. I just got it, which was the worst thing in the world. It just reinforced all my selfishness. <laughs> At least that was me. Not, not every only child is like that. But when I worship, I get clarity of mind. When, I'm with, when I sing with the community, I get clarity that I don't have on my own. And it's, it's something. This is why American Christians struggle so much because we have such a sense of it's me and Jesus. We really don't have a cross. We have a stake. <laughs> me and Jesus. But the Bible doesn't say it's me and Jesus. It says it's we and Jesus. And we can't shape our own lives without the support of of other believers. And so, when we decide, I'm going to gather as a rhythm, as a part of my life, and sing with other believers, it's a simple thing. When things are shaking, it roots us, it anchors us, and it shapes us in a way that all of our efforts on our own don't. I've sat in this auditorium with you guys and with many people over the years since we planted this church years ago, and I've Come in, dragging my tail. Just hurting, struggling, uh, frustrated, whatever, in a bad place. And began to sing, and it began to lift off my shoulders. And the Spirit of God began to come, because when we worship, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to kiss the sun again. It's an invitation to say, not my will, but your will. Because Jesus was mocked because he did what we won't do many times in our worst moments. Is Jesus said, when the cup was handed him, the cup of suffering, he said, God, please take this from me. But if this is your will, I'll drink it. I'll drink it. And because he did that, when we draw near to God through him, that changes us. And we find a new desire in our hearts that comes from him by the work of the Holy Spirit to say, not my will, but your will. And as we do that, we begin to reap and the blessing begins to come in all these areas of our lives that don't seem necessarily directly connected to singing. But it shapes us together. So, taking refuge in Jesus is a, it has, takes many forms. Kissing the sun takes many forms. And uh, Jason, why don't you come up? We, I just want to practice this for a moment. That, that song that we sang in the worship set was really simple. And I want to tell you something as, as Jason comes up here about worship. Something happens that you, you might not realize it, what's going on. But it's really crucial for you to get this. When you sing, and when you can sing, like Jason, uh, Jason Nolan likes to say, and you can't hear your own voice, you begin to lose self-consciousness. You begin to stop thinking about yourself and you begin to become more childlike but there's a vulnerability in worship there's a vulnerability in singing together that we all have to recognize at a moment we have to choose to enter into that vulnerability or we stay on the safe quote the safe side and it we're not drawn into Jesus coming to us so we can kiss him and he can kiss us And this divine exchange begins to take place in our hearts and lives. And all of a sudden, our minds begin to open up. Our hearts begin to soften. Because we spend all this time in the world, which we're supposed to. That's what we're made for. But that world begins to harden us. And it begins to make us pull into our shell. And it begins to make us like it. Even if we really love Jesus and want to follow Him. When we come into these moments where we sing together, our hearts begin to be drawn. Because the Bible says, if you draw near to God, He draws near to you. And the thing is, worship exposes everything. You just, it, it, it really exposes you. And, and it doesn't expose you to other people, you understand? It exposes you to yourself. And you have an opportunity when we worship together to say yes. To Say yes. Jesus, I want to sing this song with sincerity of heart and my heart isn't into it, but I want to admit that's a terrible thing for my heart not to be delighting in you. But it, it might not be delighting in him at that very moment, not because you don't really care about him, but because you've been kicked around a little bit. And as you press into the Lord, whatever that is starts coming to the surface. And as you engage him with the rest of the body, the spirit starts working in your heart. And a softening starts happening. And an an openness. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord, which is what you're moving into there, the reverence of God when you're kissing the Son, is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts being birthed in your heart. He said, blessed are those who take refuge in him. When we worship, we are taking refuge in Jesus. We are kissing the Son. So I want you to stand with me. And we're just going to sing this little song again we sang during the worship set. And I just encourage you to close your eyes. If if you, (laughs) you know the song, close your eyes. If you don't, obviously... It's a simple song. You can learn it. But I think the Lord, there's, there's things He wants to do here today. And I want to ask you just to quiet yourself as you sing. Quiet your heart and open it up to Him. So pray. Close your eyes for a moment. Just shut yourself in. Just with you and Jesus right now. Just in your own heart. Just say, Lord, I I give myself to you. Not just my words. Not just a little... Moment here or there, I give everything to you. I give my heart to you. I open it up to you. Even as you open your life up to me, I open my heart up to you. some of you just feel uncomfortable right now maybe you don't know why but you feel unsettled some of you know why i think there's there's several people here that you're you're wrestling with the cost of following christ that following jesus is starting to interrupt your relationships it's starting to stress the, the nice cozy situation you have, and Jesus is just saying, "That's a that's a good sign." Don't be ashamed of Him. He wasn't ashamed of you. He wasn't ashamed of the mess that you made. He was willing to take that upon Himself for you. Lord, those that are struggling with feeling ashamed of you here, I pray that you would strengthen their hearts. Lord, you know what it's like to be tempted to want to police people, to want to go along with, with a crowd. Lord, strengthen their hearts with your love. Fill their hearts with your love. Let them know that, that your love is more important than what people think and what they can offer you. I pray that this word just be a seed in the hearts of every one of us here, that when we're shaking, when the, our world is being shaken, that we would sing. We would gather with your people and sing. We would gather and worship you. That we wouldn't resist that, Lord. We wouldn't try to sort it out on our own. That we would come together in simple humility and worship you, sing to you. This is an act of faith that you're going to meet us. Anchor us in that in a new way, Lord. Forgive us for making that optional. Forgive us for making that in any way optional. You know, before we uh, before I dismiss you, uh, just pray for a couple of things. Is there anybody here that uh, you have a chronic condition with uh, high blood pressure? Just raise your hand. Hold me, Just keep it up for a second. Okay, there's a few people here. All right. Um, keep your hand up. We're going to just have folks gather around you and pray for you like, like we do here. This is how we roll. Hold, keep your hands up because I saw the hands. Okay, you guys that are part of the church, you're the prayer team. That's how it works here. If you could just gather around those people. Hands up. There you go. Keep them up. There you go. Thank you. Just pray and command that blood pressure to, to return to normal. That's simple. Anybody else here that you have some kind of specific chronic physical condition that, that you know, you're getting treated for, but you just would like prayer for it? Just raise your hand wherever you are right now. I know there's more people here that have it. Make yourself vulnerable, folks. Okay. Uh, We're going to just begin praying for them. And uh, everybody else, in the name of Jesus, I bless you. Uh, May God's grace and peace go with you this week. May his word grow in your hearts and be rooted and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week.